Good morning, so good to see you all here and online. Go ahead and leave your Bibles open to uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 2. We'll be looking at it off and on as we move through the passage. And what a passage we have before us today. It's this uh, fascinating and action-packed story, but it's also an especially tragic one. What we're looking at today actually is the beginning of a civil war. Now, of course, all wars are tragic, but there is something especially tragic about civil wars, right? Because what uh, often happens in civil wars or what sets them apart is that they can involve brothers going to war against other brothers, where families and clans and tribes who actually share the same blood are being torn apart through bloodshed. Civil wars are basically this terrible reminder of what once was and, and how something that was once united harmoniously is now suffering terrible, ugly fracture. So you may be wondering, how, how, how did Israel get to this point? How did this nation digress into civil war, of all things? Well, here's the short answer. It happened because men tried to take the kingdom for themselves rather than entrust it to God's loving and wise care. In other words, uh, we see the beginning of civil war in Israel because underneath it all, this is all about kingdom building man's way. Right? But before we dive into our passage, I'd like to start with this important reminder about where we're at in the story of 2 Samuel. And that reminder is simply this. The kingdom of David is an insignificant kingdom. Right? At this point in the story, David's kingdom, while initiated by God himself, is like this invisible speck on the world scene. And as Carrier reminded us last week, it's, it's what you would call presently a mustard seed kingdom, right? This tiny speck of nothing. And here's how truly insignificant David's kingdom is at this point. David has actually been ruling for seven plus years in Hebron, but he's managed to only secure the loyalty of one lonely tribe, the tribe of Judah. And this means that the other 11 tribes have actively rejected David from being king over them, right? They've, they've actually pledged their allegiance instead to a man named Saul or Ishbosheth, who is the son of their former deceased king, Saul. So from the outside looking in, and especially after all these years, it's really easy to basically write off David as some sort of lame duck king, right? Someone who's just uh, ripe for knocking off And that's what actually brings us to the events of today's passage. Because here comes a man named Abner who's looking to do just that. He wants to remove David from the throne, knock him off his his wobbly one-tribe seat. And remember who Abner is, right? He was was actually King Saul's right-hand man, basically his number two in command over all of Israel's armies at that point. And he wasn't just a military guy. He was also a very shrewd commander. Because 
This is what he pulled off after Saul's death. He took Ishbosheth and had him installed as king, and then secured the loyalty of all the 11 other tribes to Ishbosheth. And he accomplished this all during a major crisis, right? When they were fighting with the Philistines. So, uh, as far as uh, Ishbosheth goes, it's no surprise that he's actually not much of a king at all. He's basically a puppet king, right? Abner's the one that's pulling the strings. He's actually the, the, the substance of that kingdom. And this is also why Abner is so opposed to David's kingdom. Because at the end of the day, Abner is really just about Abner. He's looking to build and keep his own kingdom, right? And David, who is the, the Lord's anointed, he's this imminent threat to his own sense of power, influence, and control, or whatever delusions he has about those things. So when you see Abner, what you see is a man trying to build a kingdom, man's way. Now that said, for what it's worth, I think he's actually a lot like uh, many of us. Very much reflects every sinful human being, maybe. Because who doesn't like having more control, after all? Even if it is just an illusion. But back to Abner. He's busy. He's busy trying to get things done and build a kingdom. And if you're trying to build a kingdom in this world, what's the first thing that you need? Well, first and foremost, you need some manpower, right? By manpower, I'm talking about the human resources of uh, brute physical force, or what we think we often need to settle our most difficult conflicts, right? What, what do we try to do when we really run up against it? We try to assert our wills through violence. I mean, this is... Uh, Basically, the history of, of humanity, if you're going to be honest about it. So that would bring me to my first point, which is the kingdoms of man rely on manpower. Now, I think many of us would like to believe that we're somehow less brutal than our unenlightened barbarian ancestors. But the numbers actually tell us that we're at best the same and likely probably worse. For instance, in the last century, the 20th century, there were more lives lost in war, genocide, etc., than all recorded centuries prior, combined. That's how bad it was. I think we've just found ways to cloak the violence, right? Partly through our ever-growing advances in technology, which has actually made us all the more proficient in violence, not less. Now, the use and abuse of, of manpower in our text today, it's not hiding behind much technology. In fact, the very first battle in our passage feels like a trip right to the uh, ancient gladiatorial arena, some ancient version of uh, the Thunderdome. And this first battle, it takes place uh, because Abner... He's going to bring the heat. He's going to bring the fight to David by heading south to this city, Gibeon, which is actually this really desirable military stronghold city. 
located just a few miles away from, from the edge of, of David's border. Now, as it turns out, Abner isn't really the only strong man in this scenario. Right? He's not the only one with manpower to back him up. King David also has a, a right-hand man. He has a commander and a really capable one, and his name is Joab. He also happens to be his nephew, David's nephew. Now, we don't know how Joab heard about Abner's encroachment into Gibeon, but Joab goes out to meet him right away with his soldiers, and this rumble is about to take, take place near this thing called the Pool of Gibeon, which actually archaeologists have likely uncovered. You can actually go and see where this might have all gone down. But look with me at verse 12, and just try to imagine the tension that's growing here. All right, verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Now, you probably already got the sense here that this is not some friendly pool party that's, you know, coming together. It's, there are no floaties, there's no soda and bowls of chips and all that good stuff. Actually, this is just the calm before the storm. These warriors are likely getting themselves ready to fight to the death. Just imagine where you'd have to get in, in, in your head for something like this, right? But what's really interesting in the text is that there's so much symmetry or similarity presented here between the two opposing sides. It's almost as if they mirror one another, right? And the pool, the pool even reflects that. It's as if they're actually not that different from one another. And why would they be different, right? Because it wasn't that long ago that they were a single united army under a single united kingdom. But the reason they're here, they're going to settle the score. They're going to settle this all-important question of whose kingdom is this going to be? Is it going to belong to Ishbosheth, or is it going to belong to Saul or, or David? But did you notice who's not around for this showdown? Right? What is really strange about this whole event? I'd say it's the fact that neither King Ishbosheth or David are anywhere to be found. Neither is uh, warriors on the, the field or players in the events, according to this passage. Yeah, it makes sense that Ishbosheth isn't there, right? He's just a puppet king. He's not in charge. Abner is in charge. But we must take notice of how David, for all intents and purposes, has nothing to do with this day or any of its terrible events. This showdown, it falls primarily on the shoulders of Abner, who starts it, and Joab, who tries to finish it. This is all about kingdom building apart from the king. This is really just classic human politics. And this is a bit disheartening, right? Because Joab, he's supposed to be on the side of King David. He's supposed to be on the right side of history or whatever. 
but he appears to be a lot like Abner in his tendency to try to take matters into his own hands. In fact, as we see 2 Samuel progress, we're going to see Joab become more and more like this. And at this point, I just want to point out that he does stand as a warning to many of us about how we can actually forfeit the kingdom when we try to advance it on our own terms according to man's ways and means. Because even though Abner and Joab are are dueling opposites here, here's what we're actually about to see is that they're not that much different in their approach. To start, right, they both try to utilize manpower to build their respective kingdoms. And they both agree to send out 12 soldiers, you know, 12 soldiers each side for some intense hand-to-hand combat. Look with me at verse 14. Verse 14, and Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Once again, just notice this literary symmetry, right? And why? Why Why this number of 12 for each side? Why this little battle? Well, practically, maybe they thought they were going to kind of limit casualties, right? This is their way of being wise. Uh, I, that's part of it. But the number 12 is what actually stands out. It's no accident. This is the number for the tribes of Israel, right? This is the number of of tribes that God designated for this nation. And I suspect that this was their way of of trying to symbolically decide which version of Israel was going to survive, right? Their definition of Israel or the other side's. You get the sense that this is maybe a little bit problematic? Who but the Lord himself gets to decide who Israel is and is not, right? He's already defined Israel. He's already spoken on this matter. But they seem to have forgotten God in their foolish attempts to play God. And the outcome is... As it always is, futility and death. Look with me at verse 24 to see what happens to these young soldiers that are sent out to battle. Actually, verse 16. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is a Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So this initial battle ended with a horror of all 24 men somehow simultaneously killing each other. And this was such a shocking event that that they gave a name to the place where it happened, uh, which is roughly translated Field of Stone Knives. So this battle turned out to be completely and terribly pointless. 
This battle solved nothing. In fact, it just made things worse. Right? The, the, the outcome of the use and abuse of manpower was once again futility and death. So, once the 24 fall, another huge battle is triggered between the armies, and Abner, who came to Gibeon as the aggressor, right, seeking his own glory, ends up getting beat back by David's soldiers. Now, you think that this is time for Joab to celebrate? But then we move on to the next story, where we're immediately confronted with more futility and death. Um, and this time, it's a story of Asahel, Joab's younger brother, whose speed was his glory. But his speed is what eventually kills him. And that leads me to my second point, which is the kingdoms of man, they're all about one thing. Man glory. Man glory. Yes, it's a, it's a made-up word that's meant to get your attention. But here's what I mean by it. Man glory. It's about the kind of empty glory that human beings seek to receive from other human beings. Man glory is this intoxicating, addictive, but also fading glory. And it leads people to pursue incredibly foolish, wicked, and selfish lives. And yes, we're all susceptible to it as we try to build our little kingdoms. Jesus even warned that this kind of glory, seeking glory from men, is one of the biggest hindrances to authentic belief or life-giving faith. Right? Here's what he says to the people in John chapter 5. He asks, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Clear antithesis there. And sadly, what we see today with this death of Asahel is the tragedy of someone trying to save their own lives, right? Chasing such glory, but they only end up losing their lives. And the tragedy is actually compounded by the fact that there was something genuinely glorious about Asahel, right? In verse 18, we're told, now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, right? Modern ears, we just hear that. We don't see many gazelles around, whatever, we gloss over it. But the interesting thing about describing his speed in terms of a gazelle is that in Hebrew, the word that we often see translated as glory, it can just as well mean gazelle, right? We're talking, the, the Bible's given us some hints about how glorious this guy was. David even uses the, the word glory, right, in his lament for Jonathan and in his poem of lament in chapter 1. He describes Jonathan as the glory or the gazelle of Israel. But as it turns out, Asahel isn't interested in using his speed for the glory of Israel to pursue the glory that comes from God. He's interested in man glory, which is, which is what spurs him on to obsessively chase after Abner, you know, the, the, the top dog and the biggest prize on the battlefield that day. Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19. 
And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. I mean, this is impressive determination and confidence. It is I. I'm coming to take your head. Right? But actually, it was Asahel who was in way over his head, right? He wasn't actually prepared to take on someone of Abner's experience and capability. I mean, don't forget, Abner is this battle-tested, experienced commander, not the kind of person you want to toy with. In fact, Abner, you know, again tries to convince Asahel to, to stop this, right? He doesn't want to have to do this. He knows Joab on some personal level. This is not something he wants to do is fight Asahel because he knows he's going to win. But Asahel, blinded by his arrogance, totally overconfident in his own skills, drunk with the pursuit of man glory, responds this way. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, but he, Asahel, refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Futility and death. What a tragedy. What a completely avoidable, pointless loss. Right? Like I said, Abner's this veteran fighter. He's, he knows the tricks. Many commentators say he probably used this trick where he suddenly came to a stop, right, and pushed the bottom of his spear out. And Asahel's going so fast, right? He can't stop himself. So he moves his body right through the end of the spear, not the tip. Now, no one could hardly believe that Wild gazelle, Azahel, was dead. Right? We have moments like this where we see some sort of celebrity or some great athlete you know, fall in their youth or in their prime, and we just can't believe it, right? We're even told that um, where Azahel fell, even the soldiers in Abner's army stopped in stunned silence. So what's the end result of uh, kingdom building man's way? Futility and death. And I think uh, Asahel also stands here as this stark warning to many of us to not squander whatever talents that the Lord's given us, pursuing the glory that comes from men. I don't need to belabor this point. Day in and day out, we hear of people inside and outside the church trying to have it all, right? Seeking glory from men rather than from God. Many of them, they're Christian. You know, they try to masquerade as if they're trying to build the kingdom of God when really it's, it's their own kingdom that they're after. And just ask yourself, you know, in the daily course of your activities, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? What glory am I seeking? What kingdom am I actually looking to build with my very limited time here? 
Because if we seek the glory that comes from men, never ends well. And for those that call themselves believers, they, I think, often end up shipwrecking their faith as a result of living for man glory. Now, after Asahel falls, the only men who actually don't stop where he fell are his brothers, right? Joab and Abishai. We're told that they, they're going after Abner even harder now, and this is totally understandable. Verse 24, But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. So here's Joab chasing Abner, as the day was actually turning into night. And Abner's on the retreat back to his home base in Mahanaim. But on the way, he'd somehow managed to secure some serious backup and, and actually find his way to this uh, strategically advan- ad- advantageous high ground, right? He's on top of a hill. Once again, if we're just uh, thinking about in terms of manpower, Abner actually now has the fighting advantage over Joab, just like he, he had over Asahel, right? And it looks like we're set for another brutal showdown. This is a, a potentially explosive situation. But out of nowhere, Abner does something surprising. He actually tries to broker a truce. All right? Look with me at verse 26. 26. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So, there's actually a lot of truth in what he's saying. But there's also something a bit hollow about these rhetorical questions that Abner throws out to Joab here. Yes, the swords will never stop shedding blood if we don't stop this. right? And regardless of how things end, the outcome is going to be bad for both sides. It's going to be bitter. Because remember, we're family. We're brothers. And brothers should not be killing brothers. Now, what Abner fails to mention here is that he was the initial aggressor who started this whole thing. And now he's sounding like he's putting it all on Joab, right? It's his responsibility to put an end to all this fighting when he says, uh, how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit? Now, Joab's response to Abner uh, in verse 27 is actually a bit difficult to to parse in the Hebrew, but um, let me try to put it in my words here. Uh, Joab responds by saying, Don't forget, Abner, it was you that flapped your gums this morning and started all of this, right? And if it wasn't for you opening your mouth, we would have kept fighting. It's on you. This is your fault. And once again, uh, there's some truth in Joab's response, right? But like Abner, there's something about it that also rings a bit hollow. Joab sidesteps his own responsibility in all this, doesn't he? Because as the saying goes, it takes two to tango. Yes, Abner started it. But Joab engaged it, right? 
Now, do you think, in the realm of possibility, could Joab have responded differently that morning? I think maybe he could have uh, decided then and there to pause, right, to reflect, maintain the peace by the pool, and inquire of the Lord. His king did that. His king David did this. Or maybe he could have bought some time, maybe even partially retreated, so that he could go back and seek counsel with King David, the Lord's anointed. But no, Joab, the commander, he did none of those things. And instead, he simply mirrored Abner, right? Decided to take all the king's men down the path of manpower, seeking man glory. And he said those fateful few words, right? Let them arise. And the result, once again, for all involved, was futility and death. Yeah, uh, Abner's army took the brunt of the casualties, but we mustn't mistake something like that for victory, much less progress. Because here's what happens as the day descends into darkness. Both armies end up retreating right back to where they started. They basically go back to square one. Abner goes to Mahanaim, and Joab goes back to Hebron, meaning there was no territory gained. No loyalties were changed. No big political questions were solved. But they did manage to come to a truce that day, but we all know it wasn't anything like actual peace, right? It was just an armistice. It was just a break in the action. It was time to reload, so to speak. So the burning question at the end of all this is, what is actually going to bring an end to this vicious cycle of futility and death? What is going to bring an end to brothers murdering brothers, which has been happening since the very beginning of brothers, Cain and Abel? In the biblical scheme of things, it turns out that every war we've seen is a civil war, right? We're all descendants of one man, Adam. And who is going to bring true and lasting peace and unity to the children of Adam. Well, there's a profound glimmer of hope right near the end of our passage today. And this glimmer of hope is found in the dark night in a place that's mentioned as Asahel's final resting place, Bethlehem. Look with me at verse 32. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Bethlehem, interestingly enough, was basically halfway between Gibeon and Hebron. And this is also where Asahel is from. It's also where David is from. And if you are familiar with the story of 1 Samuel, it's also the place where God chose David to be the king of his people many, many years ago, right? God was already going ahead of his people, securing their hope, keeping his promises. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 16 if you'd like, because it wasn't ultimately 
the manpower or the man glory of Abner and Joab that was going to bring peace to God's people and unite them under their king, this would have to happen under the power and glory of the Lord himself. After all, all the king's men, even the best of them, all they were able to bring to this terrible day because of their weakness and sin was futility and death and further hopelessness, further conflict. And spoiler alert, uh, as we'll see, the same would be true eventually of King David's reign as well. Yes, there were times where King David was exceptionally faithful. Uh, and yes, there was unity for a time under his reign. But on account of David's own weakness and sin, Israel would come back right to where they started. Because not too long after David's death, Israel would be divided and at war with one another. And uh, this is the tale. This is history 101 of all man-made kingdoms. All human leaders fall short. All human nations and kingdoms rise and fall. And it's all on account of our weakness and sin. And yet, and, and I'm very much included in this, uh, we continue to put so much of our hope and energy day to day in man's power and glory, right? In the midst of this very fleeting life. Seems like every two years, we as Americans just have to freak out, right? But you got to remember, the reality of David's kingdom was never meant to be the final one. As glorious as it was at times, it was just a faint foreshadow of the kingdom to come. One that was much more mighty, much more glorious. And where would one need to look for the beginnings of this kingdom? How can we draw near to it today? The answer is found in Bethlehem, right? Because a millennium after King David, this promised king, that is Jesus, would be born in Bethlehem, right? And his birth would be announced or declared to the world in the darkness of night by a bright star cutting through all the darkness, drawing the whole world, or at least, you know, a microcosm of it, to his arrival. And his arrival would mean the doing of futility and death once and for all. The angel told this to Mary. You'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this Christ Jesus would be like no other king. He would rely solely on the power of God for his kingdom while seeking after his glory alone. He'd be perfect in wisdom, righteousness, and power, utterly subverting the ways of men, which culminates in the way of the cross, where no blood would be shed for the sake of his kingdom, but his very own, 
And while the cross would look like utter weakness and foolishness in the eyes of men, this is where King Jesus wanted to be lifted up. Right? This is where he would declare victory over all evil once and for all. And you know what? You know what the result of this is? What the end result of this is? We heard about it from Ephesians. Through his death and resurrection and his, and his atonement for sins, Christ would accomplish what men like Abner, Joab, and David could not. Christ Jesus will one day unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, and bring an end to all the hostility between men and men between God, right? He will bring peace. So, remember Bethlehem, where man's kingdom building comes to an end. And we see the beginning of the dawn of the kingdom of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.